0: Can you hear me, Frank? I sure can. Can you hear me? That's Frank Koppenbarker. Frank was the equipment manager for the Cardinals in the early 80s. Then in 1988, he became the clubhouse manager for the Phillies and, among other things, was responsible for cleaning players' lockers out at the end of a season.
1: Well, cleaning it out at the end of the year, we we found a check for $20,000 that he had never cashed from uh, from a sporting (laughs) goods company and part of an old cheesesteak that had probably been
0: there since, like, May. When you hear the name of that player, you will not be surprised. After 50 years in the game, working in some of the most lively clubhouses in baseball, he's got some stories to share on this episode of the Lost Ballparks Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Jack Buck with Carl Erskine at Municipal Stadium in Kansas City, Missouri from Sunny Shive Park in the city of Philadelphia. Brought to you direct from Comiskey Park. So we have action at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn. And there's always action here. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you
1: from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Sunny day here at Tigers First game, the wind blowing straight in from right field. Well, friends, here we are back at the polo grounds in New York City. So I'll pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead, wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave for a two throughout the
0: evening. Frank Koppenbarger, welcome to the Lost Ballparks Podcast. How are you? I'm great, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, honored that you asked me. Fifty years in baseball, Frank, including the last thirty with the Phillies, first as the head equipment manager and then as the director of travel and clubhouse services. You retired in two thousand nineteen, but after so many years, there are plenty of stories to tell, and uh, we're excited to have you on the podcast today. Let's start with this: when you were eleven years old in nineteen sixty seven, you were the bat boy for the Decatur Commodores in Illinois. They were a San Francisco Giants minor league club. The Commodores were playing the Wisconsin Rapids at a young. Left fielder that day named Charlie Manuel hit a home run to give the Rapids an early season victory. 41 years later, Frank, you were working for the Phillies in the dugout and now standing a few feet away from then-manager Charlie Manuel as the Phillies won the 2008 World Series. <laughs> Phillies are world champions. Talk about a full, a full circle moment.
1: That's pretty incredible story, quite honestly, that people just can't can't even imagine that and I still can't either there was a party that night
0: this is a party 25 years in the making the last time Philadelphias partied like this was 1983 when the Sixers did it and at the end of the night you were tasked with taking the World Series trophy home and keeping it safe how did that come to be
1: well uh, I was also the uh, director of team travel during uh, during that period of time and uh, at the end of the party David Montgomery who was our our president of the ball club said to me, he goes, I, I need you to do me a, a big favor. I need you to make sure that the trophy makes it to the parade tomorrow. And I said, uh, okay, no problem. I said, the only issue is I'm going to have to take it home with me because I live over in New Jersey. When I got home after the party, I had my, my kids with me. I lived in a condo, so I had some people that lived below me that I had gotten to know pretty well. And I knocked on the door, and they opened the door, and I was just
0: standing there, holding that they just couldn't believe it. You know, that, <laughs> they probably thought, "Have you lost your mind? Did you take this from the <laughs> team?" What did you, what did you do? <laughs> yeah, and then the
1: next morning, uh, I couldn't resist. I put it on the uh, kitchen table, and and we sat around it and had our breakfast. And I took a picture of the kids, and that
0: was. uh That was our Christmas card that year. What a great experience. Okay, let's backtrack just for a second. You got your first equipment manager job working for the Angel Single-A-Club in Salinas, California in 1978. That year, as an equipment manager, you got what some would consider the opportunity of a lifetime. You found yourself inserted into the lineup one day, playing alongside a young catcher, future manager Joe Madden. I think Chuck Cotier was the manager of the Salinas Ball Club at that time. So what did you do to convince him to put you in an actual game? Well, one
1: day he was throwing batting practice and I was standing by the cage and Chuck said, uh, hey, jump in there and take a couple swigs. Well, I had I was only 20, 21 years old, so I hadn't been that far removed, but I hadn't swung a bat in probably four or five years. But anyway, I hit a little bit and uh he liked it, and we had some fun with it, and I, I would do it every once in a while. The pitchers would have little games or they would, like, bet a Coke or something. Uh, they'd split the pitching staff up, and if they had an odd number of guys, I'd get drafted into that game. So I got enough uh, BP that by the next year, Chuck said to me, he goes, I'm going to get you in a game this year, and I'm thinking, no, nah, that's not going to happen, you know? And, right. I actually got in two games that year. The one uh, has been played up a little bit in the newspaper, but we had another game was an exhibition game against the inmates from Soledad prison in California. <laughs> and I got a couple of bats in that game. And then uh, the last game of the season, we had a doubleheader against the Lodi Dodgers and, and Chuck got me in there in the second game. And I actually, I actually started And I batted ahead of Madden in the lineup, so I've never let him forget that. Yeah, I guess. How did you do? (laughs) I struck out. (laughs) (laughs) I fouled a couple off, but the guy got me. You know, he threw a curveball to me. You know, I wasn't expecting that, and uh, I looked pretty bad. Rumor has it that everyone wanted to room with Joe. Why was that? Well, Joe came from Hazleton, Pennsylvania, and his mother had taught him to cook. She worked in a restaurant her whole life, and he was an excellent cook. So if you room with Joe or if you got invited to his house, uh, say, after a game, a day game or something to eat dinner, it was a real treat from the fast food league that we were in, you know, all the time because we didn't really have much money. So those were most of our meals. But Joe was really good at, uh, at baking lasagnas from scratch. And so what he would do is he would bake this lasagna, and then he'd say, okay, you guys bring the salad, and you guys bring the beer and soda or whatever, and, and come to the house. And Joe would pull these lasagnas out, and he would take a picture of the lasagna with his Polaroid camera. And uh, then the, the little white strip at the bottom of those photos, he would put the date on there and who came for dinner. Wow remembered that years later. And I asked him in spring training, I said, I'm just thinking about those lasagnas that you used to make for us. And he says, I still have that photo album. He could really cook.
0: From Salinas, you were promoted to clubhouse manager for the Cardinals AAA team in Springfield, Illinois. And it was here, Frank, that you were sent to the airport one day to pick up a mystery guest. Is that right?
1: (laughs) That's correct. Uh, Our owner, uh, A. Ray Smith, was pretty well connected in the game, and he had been around a long time, and he used to have these fabulous banquets in the wintertime. He'd call them the Diamond Dinner, and this one particular year, uh, he had a mystery guest. He advertised a, a special mystery guest would be at the dinner, so the day of the dinner, he says to me, he goes, I need you to go out and pick up the mystery guest, and I said to him, well, how will I know who it is? he goes, oh, you'll know. <laughs> and, and those were in the days when you could, in little Springfield, Illinois, Capitol Airport, you could park on the curb right in front of the terminal and walk in and go right up to the gate back in those times. And so I'm standing there at the gate, and all of a sudden, here comes Joe DiMaggio. And I'm like, well, that's got to be the mystery, guys. Yeah. There's no other reason for him to be here. <laughs> we're correct. And the funny part about it was, I had an old junky car, but the boss said, here, you know, go take my car and get it washed and pick up the mystery guest. So I've got Mr. Smith's car and we're walking out of the terminal. And as we start to go out of the door, there's a white limo out there. Well, uh, Joe DiMaggio starts walking right towards the limo. (laughs) I'm like, I don't know what to do. You know, I'm I'm like a 20 year old kid, you know? And i 21 year old kid and i'm like uh uh, excuse me mr dimaggio but actually mr smith gave me his car to pick you up and it's right over here yeah (laughs) well we found out later that the limo was for clayton Moore, the lone ranger who was signing autographs at the
0: mall what are the odds of that that they would both be coming in on the same plane or the same time same
1: time is pretty crazy but of course uh Joe DiMaggio worked that into his speech that night, and it was pretty hilarious.
0: He's like the Lone Ranger can get a limo, but I can't.
1: (laughs) He upstaged the Yankee Clipper, pretty pretty crazy. All
0: right, so from one baseball great to another, tell me about your encounter or your experience with Satchel Paige. Well, when I was in Springfield, uh, again, A. Ray
1: Smith, uh, he hired Satchel Paige to be an ambassador for the team, and so he moved in, and one day. Smith said to me, he goes, where do you live? And I said, well, I live in a small apartment near the ballpark. It's in an old house. There's three or four apartments. And he goes, well, I'd like to bring Satchel in, and maybe he could live in one of those apartments. I says, well, as it turns out, there's a, a vacancy. So he moved in. He was actually my neighbor right below me. Wait a second, for how long? Two years. You were Satchel Page's neighbor? Right, I lived right above him. So there were nights when uh, I didn't have anything else to do and the team would be on the road and I didn't travel with them. I just went down there and listened to him for a few hours. It It was awesome. Oh, my gosh. I came back from lunch one day in the wintertime. They had me selling season tickets and advertising and uh, shoveling the snow in front of the office, whatever it needed to be done. I was kind of that guy. And so in the winter, I came back at uh, lunchtime and and Smith said to me, uh, what do you got going this afternoon? Well, I didn't really want to say nothing, but that was the truth. And uh, he says, I need you to take Satchel over to his house in Kansas City. You'll fly back. So I'm like, okay. And he goes, well, he's getting packed up. Go home and, and get him and hit the road. I got you on like a ten o'clock flight back. Kansas City is about seven hours from Springfield, Illinois. Right. So Satchel was nowhere near packed up when I got to the apartment. We finally got on the road. Well, I knew I had to make up time, so I'm I'm just north of St. Louis, and I'm probably driving a hundred miles an hour.
0: Was well, Satchel before, page in the car?
1: Yeah. <laughs> and 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 before we started the journey, Satchel says. Don't worry about speeding he goes I've got just the thing and he pulls out this thing that looked like kind of a large cigar box that's how big it was and he goes this goes up on your dashboard and plugs into your cigarette lighter plug and he goes it'll let you know when the when the
0: when the cops are nearby yeah
1: right so we put it in when the cop was literally about ready to shake hands with me it went off it was the, he was going north I was heading south Yeah. And he came across that highway and I was probably talking to Satchel or something. Next thing I know, the guy's right next to me pulling me over and uh, with the lights and the siren and the whole deal. And that's when the thing finally goes off. He tells me to get out of the car. I go back to his car and, you know, of course he wants to know what my hurry is. And I was going probably 40 miles an hour over the speed limit. They they usually take you in
0: when you're doing that. Right. I had a friend who got arrested in North Carolina on spring break because of that. He was 40 yeah. miles over. Yeah. So so
1: the, I explained to the guy what I was doing, and I could tell this guy he didn't know anything about baseball. Satchel's, like, reached in the glove compartment, pull a couple baseballs out, and I'm kind of waving him back to the car, like, don't worry about it. And the police officer radios in. The car and the license plate, which was LSP-14, Leroy Satchel Page 14. So he's describing me, you know, young white male, early 20s or whatever. Yeah. The, the guy on the other end, is there anyone else in the car? And so he starts to describe Satchel. And the cop starts laughing on the other end uh, at the station. And he goes, that's Leroy Satchel Page, the famous baseball player let those guys go. Oh, man. So we got out of it. The guy said to me, he goes, well, I don't know anything about baseball, but the boss said, let you go. So I got to let you go, but try to slow it down a little bit.
0: That is so great. And so you were in the car with Satchel. I still can't get over the fact that you were neighbors with him for a couple of years, had so many stories then. And then on a seven hour drive, at well, probably not seven hours, the way you're driving, maybe five. I right. can't imagine all the great conversations and the things that you learned about his life.
1: It was an incredible experience. It really was. It's hard to believe, but it's it's very true. And he he was with our club there for two or three years. And then uh, actually they did a movie about his life, a TV uh, movie. And uh, that came out when he was there working for the team. So so that was all pretty exciting around that time. And, and especially for me, you know, a young young guy and to even be able to experience uh, being around a legendary
0: figure like that. So by 1981, you were in the big leagues as an equipment manager, first with the St. Louis Cardinals. We're back at the airport. One day, you're sent to pick up Ozzie Smith at the airport? That's correct. Okay, So how did that come to be? Well,
1: again, you know, back in those days, they we didn't use limos and town cars and stuff like that. The way it worked back then is the, the general manager would just call down the clubhouse and say, Hey, can one of you guys go pick up Ozzy Smith or, you know, Bart Giamatti or whoever it might be? And you want your own car to pick him up. Well, Ozzy had his wife at the time and his agent, and neither my boss nor I had a car big enough to get them and their luggage. So we enlisted the help of uh, of one of my boss's buddies. Who had been a Cardinal Bat boy at one time, a guy by the name of Don Deeson. And so he had an old station wagon, <laughs> if you can imagine this. And Ozzy's coming in for a big uh, his big press conference. Actually, the, the final negotiations to agree on this contract of going to the Cardinals and and you know extending his contract. He got traded for Gary Templeton.
0: So this is right at the time that he's coming from the Padres. Well, correct. Okay.
1: We're, hadn't played one game for the Cardinals yet. So it's a cold wintry day and myself and buddy Bates, my boss and Don Deason pile into the station wagon. And we go out to the airport and we pick them up and we're, we're taking them to the hotel. And all of a sudden Aussie's agent, uh, Ed Gottlieb starts discussing like all these big terms, financial terms with Don who's driving the car who doesn't even work for the Cardinals. Oh my and he's, He's talking about like funds in the Federal Reserve Bank and stuff that we, we didn't know anything about any of that. Right. And even Ozzy's looking at us all like, what's he doing? And said, well, it sounds good to me. And he goes, well, I sure hope Mr. Bush will feel that way
0: in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how it started. Wow, that's so cool. Well, and so you were there in 82 for the for the World Series. This marks the Cardinals' 13th World Series in contrast to the Brewers, who in
1: their 13-year history are here for the first time. It was my first full season. I actually got to the big league team in, in 81 after the strike was over. Yeah. My first full year, we, we were fortunate enough to win it all.
0: A World Series victory and championship rings for all. Yeah, and then in 1985, the Cardinals finished with uh, finished the season with 101 wins. They were trailing two games to one to the Dodgers and the NLCS. And then you were at Bush Stadium for game five of that NLCS when Ozzie Smith hit that dramatic home run brought to life by Jack Buck. Smith, corks one in the right, down the line! It may go! you were there for that game.
1: I sure was right in the dugout. And what a thrill. Uh, it was quite a moment. And then that uh, that put us in the lead uh, three games to two. Uh, we went back to uh, Los Angeles for game six. Jack Clark unloaded on one in the ninth inning.
0: It is Jack Clark and Tom Needempure going head to head. And the ball game on the line and the crowd on its feet. One way deep left field, and
1: that one is gone. Both those home runs came off of Tom Fewer, ironically.
0: So the Cardinals beat the Dodgers in the NLCS, and in 1985, they advanced to the World Series to take on the Kansas City Royals. And just prior to Game 4, talk about a blow, rookie Vince Coleman gets taken out. We had an
1: electric tarp at that time that was, you know, underground. So when the, when they needed to put the tarp up, they would have to clear everybody back, and the team was actually having batting practice. The clouds started to gather, and the ground crew decided that we had to pull the field for BP. So they tried to get the word out to everybody, and all of a sudden, the tarp starts coming up from the along the third base line, and Vince Coleman's still out there around the batting cage, and he, they're pulling the cage off, and he's turned around. And he's kind of Talking to another guy on, on the other team, and they're laughing and joking around. And next thing you know, that tarp runs over his foot and starts to roll up his leg. And it weighs quite a bit. Coleman did not see this automatic roller coming up from behind him. His leg was caught underneath it. He was trapped, screaming in pain and fear. They stopped it when they figured out what was wrong. And then, of course, the only way they could get it off was to back it back off his leg. And by then, you know, we had the the trainer out there and the doctor and everything else. It is a seriously bruised
0: ankle. He will not play tonight.
1: And he was hurt pretty bad. In fact, he was done for the year at that point.
0: Did it just feel like at that point, like it just took the wind out of the sails? Like, what are we going to do?
1: Well, definitely, because he was a real catalyst for the team. That was his first year. But, you know, he came up. He never looked back. The guy would get on base in the first inning and He would steal second and steal third on on the next two pitches, and then somebody would hit a ground ball, and we'd be up one to nothing all the time. So that was a huge weapon to have out of the lineup. Tito Landrum will replace him in the lineup. Willie McGee will move into the leadoff spot. Tito Landrum filled in admirably. I think that first night, he actually got three or four hits the night that Coleman was injured by the tarp, but uh, we went to the World Series, and, and we had a commanding lead, but it but it wasn't to be.
0: The Kansas City Royals are the 1985 world champions. By 1988, you were hired to run the Phillies clubhouse. Who is the highest maintenance player you ever had to work with?
1: Oh, Lenny Dykstra, without a doubt. It was not uncommon. He didn't get a hit his first at bat. He would come in and literally take off every piece of clothing, you know, uniform, underwear, everything, and he'd just throw it in the trash. Shoes and everything is something different. And then, of course, we'd be digging it out of the trash can. So, <laughs> so that happened a lot. And uh, the other thing he was uh, really finicky about was uh, batting gloves and bats. But batting gloves, he used a different pair of batting gloves every at bat. I've never
0: seen a player do that. Uh, so he probably needed his own clubhouse manager, right?
1: Well, that's kind of was what I used to joke about. I'm like, well... Uh, I'll take care of Lenny and
0: you guys handle the other 24, you know, and that was about how it was. Some players, just like some people, are very clean, very tidy, and then other people not so much. So who had the dirtiest locker in that Phillies locker room?
1: Well, that'd be a tie. Uh, the 93 team would for sure be John Kruk, and the uh, 07 to 11 or 10 team would be Jason Worth. They they were pretty uh, pretty equal as far as that. What was found in John Crux and his locker <laughs> when it was being cleaned out? Well, cleaning it out at the end of the year, we uh, we found a check for $20,000 that he had never cashed from, uh, from a sporting goods company and part of an old cheesesteak that had probably been there
0: since like May. That he feels like such a John it. Crux thing.
1: We kept this locker empty because this was my locker and all the stuff that filtered out the trash and everything that I never cleaned up all year because I was a slob came into this locker. And Tank actually one day tried to get some of his stuff over into this locker. And I told him, I said, look, you're young, you're a rookie. Get your crap out of my locker because I need... He said, well, you already got a big one in this one. So said, how much... You-? I said, believe me, you'll see by the end of the year all the crap that I have that's piled up. And it took him like two or three days for the clubhouse kids to clean this thing after the season was over.
0: That 93 Phillies team, finished with 97 wins, ended up losing the World Series to the Blue Jays. Those guys like to just hang out at the clubhouse at the vet after games and would sometimes I think be there till one, two, three o'clock in the morning. Now as the clubhouse manager, that meant you had to be there too. So you needed to come up with a solution for that. And what was that?
1: Well yeah, I went to our GM Lee Thomas and I'm like Lee, you know, (laughs) I gotta go home. I said, you know, I gotta go home and get some rest and come back the next day. And these guys are staying here all night. So what we did was there was a wall that in uh, Jim Fregosi's area uh, just in the back part of his office that led right out into the hallway. So we literally knocked a, a hole in the wall and put a door in there with a crash bar in it. So they could let themselves out at night because the, the other door, the main clubhouse door, you had to lock it with the key and I sure wasn't going to give any of those guys a key. Right. <laughs> and, uh then you also had to use a chain and a padlock. You know, it was pretty uh, primitive. So, so we put we actually constructed a new door in the uh, home clubhouse at the vet where they could let themselves out. And and I'm not kidding you when I tell you that there were times in the morning that I would come back to the clubhouse to work for another game, and uh, the beer would still be somewhat cold in the pitchers if there was any left over in the training room where they hung out all the
0: time. Oh my gosh! But you were now. Thanks to the new door, you're finally able to get some sleep. Oh
1: yeah, you know it's a lot of hours, and uh, I couldn't do that and get back to work and, and, and do my job. So, but we didn't want to deny them from uh, from that bonding. That's what made that team so uh, so well known, and, and and I think arguably could be the most popular team in Philadelphia, even over uh, the World Championship teams. Sometimes, in some people's opinion.
0: The Phillies won the, as we mentioned before, the 2008 World Series. In 2009, they're right back there again, this time facing the New York Yankees. Game one was at Yankee Stadium. And then a couple hours before the game, Frank, you get a call. Who's that call from? (laughs) Game one starting pitcher, Cliff Lee. I would say it's unusual
1: in the postseason, but it's not unusual for a starting pitcher to come a little later than everybody else. And they're allowed to do that just so they can, you know, get their rest up till the last minute. But Cliff decided not to take the bus, and he was going to come out on his own, and he didn't factor in, you know, those games start later, so he didn't factor in rush hour traffic, et cetera, and people going to the game. So the phone rings, and I first thought, I was actually out on the field. I was all done with my pregame work, and I thought, well, I'm going to go out there and take in the atmosphere a little bit, you know, batting practice and all that. And Yeah. And just all the, you know, the hoopla and the phone rings and not. My first thought was that he had, you know, some more tickets he needed to leave for someone. And when he told me he wasn't at the ballpark and that I should let Charlie know because he didn't know if he could even get there. And I'm first thing I thought was, I'm not letting Charlie know. This is game one of game the, one world, of the series. world Series.
0: So, so your heart must have immediately started racing.
1: Oh, yeah. So I went and found Rich Duby, our pitching coach, and I told him about it. And then I advised Cliff. I said, look, maybe you should see if a police car happens to be nearby because there's policemen all over New York. And I think it would help you get a get maybe go in the car and, and bring you to the ballpark. Right. He had said to me, "He goes, that's what his agent told him, too. But instead, Cliff took the subway to the ballpark. <laughs> With, with thousands of fans. <laughs> and I don't think anyone had any idea who it was and they wouldn't even believe who it was anyway, that close mm. to the game time.
0: You know? Yeah, there's no way. Cause even fans at that point are probably upset, you know, at themselves for being so late to the game. You want to get right. there a little
1: early. So now Cliff calls me again and he's there, but at 2009, that was the first year of the new Yankee stadium. And he says, well, it, I've never been here to the new park. I don't know how to get in.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: So I'm like, uh, well, where are you? And he described where he was. I said, well, stay, stay right there. We'll have a clubhouse kid come up and bring you down. And, and it didn't bother him. I think he pitched like a two hit shutout or something that night.
0: Narrowly missed the game completely. That might've just taken Charlie's life right then. Manager Charlie, that that might've just done him. (laughs) I was looking for our pitching coach immediately. Hey, Frank, thanks so much for the time today. This has been uh, so much fun to relive your piece of, of, of baseball history. It's just exciting to hear all of these stories. How many people in the world can say their neighbor was Satchel Paige for two years?
1: Probably not very many. No.
0: Thanks so much, Frank. I really appreciate it. And thank you. And uh, with, with the lineup of
1: people you've had on your show, I'm just honored to be on that list. Thanks so much. All right, Frank,
0: have a great week. We'll talk to you soon, OK? You too. Thank you. Okay. Listen, there's no question over the three seasons of the Lost Ballparks podcast, I've loved having players on like Cal Ripken Jr. and Mike Piazza, Rod Carew and Jim Palmer and all those guys. But there's something special about people who have worked behind the scenes in Major League Baseball. They just have some great stories to share. And when they're willing to do it, it makes for a fun half hour. Producers of the Lost Ballparks podcast are Briggs Buckingham, Maddie Zavlakis, Mike Dunn, Xavier Guerra and Michael Ortman. Hard to believe, but next week will be the finale of season three. We'll talk to you then. Have a great week and thanks for listening to the Lost Ballparks podcast.